Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. In his new book, in English, it's called True and False Reform, What It Means to be Catholic. Cardinal Gerhard Mueller explores the long-term implications of the Second Vatican Council. And he writes that no opposition may be made between the spirit and the letter of Vatican II. He uh, criticizes contrasting interpretations of the Council for being unwilling to engage in dialogue. So you have, again, at the far right, ultra-traditionalists. At the far left, you've got uh, ultra-modernists. And uh, the truth is they don't know how to talk to one another. Uh, They talk at each other, but not with each other. With me right now to talk about the problems that these extreme positions uh, make for us uh, as Catholics and in our witness to the world, we've got Dr. Eduardo Echeverria. He's professor of philosophy and theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, the author of uh, several books, uh, in most recently, Are We Together?, a Roman Catholic analyzes evangelical Protestants and Pope Francis. Uh, oh, excuse me. Uh, Roman Catholic analyzes evangelical Protestants. He's also written Pope Francis, The Legacy of Vatican II, which we've talked about on this program as well. Ed, thanks. Good to have you here. Al, it's always a pleasure to be here and talk about these uh, important topics. This, this, uh, I saw your piece in Catholic World Report on Cardinal Mueller's book, and I thought this would be great for us to get together because this is a great concern uh, to me as well. And um, why don't you tell me, what do you think is behind uh, Cardinal Muller's book? <clears throat> what, is he, what sparked uh, him to write this very thing? What, did, what has he seen? Well, I think he sees that there's a, um, a conflict in the church between, as you said, between the modernist and uh, he calls them traditionalists, but I would say the neo-traditionalists. Yeah. And uh, you quoted him, and he says, um, you know, that you th- there, there there can be no no opposition here. You see the so he wants to. I think he wants to provide an account, particularly with respect to the Second Vatican Council, why the council avoids both yeah. the modernist view which in the way that they interpret the council and then the neo-traditionalists. Both of those camps actually thinks Vatican II represents a, a major break. That's exactly right. With, with the historic teaching That's of That's exactly church. right. We can say something about that in a moment. But <clears throat> I did want to say something first about the, you know, in 1985, John Paul II called the Extraordinary Synod of, of 1985, where <clears throat> the bishops came together with the aim of uh, encouraging a deeper uh, reception and implementation of the council. And one of the most uh, significant uh, results of that council was that it produced um, a set of principles for interpreting Vatican II documents. <clears throat> George Weigel, in his recent book on the Second Vatican Council, which uh, I also wrote a, a review of, he calls these principles the master key hmm. of interpreting the council. The minor key, he thinks, is uh, John Paul II's writings and also the writings of Benedict. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But just just very quickly, the, the these various principles, one is that um, <clears throat> it says that the theological interpretation of the conciliar doctrine must show attention to all the documents. Mm-hmm in themselves and in their close interrelationship in such a way that the integral meaning of the Council's affirmations, often very complex, might be understood and expressed. Let me add here 
that the council documents, although they don't commit the church to any formal error, doesn't mean that they're complete. Right. right. Uh, Benedict, in uh, Benedict sixteen, one of the last addresses he gave uh, <clears throat> was uh, he made comments about Nostretate, you know, the document of uh, the, the Catholic Church and non-Christian religions, and he says at one point that uh, it's a marvelous document, he says, but it's too positive about, about other religions. So, um, so it was incomplete. Yeah. We need alternative formulations. We need to deepen our understanding. Yeah. Uh, also, secondly... Yeah, th- I, this is, I yeah. think this is important. I, I, I tell yeah, you, it is absolutely we, important. Where I noticed this um, is when... Uh, I noticed that they don't refer to Islam. They refer to Muslims. Right. They, no, <laughs> they don't refer to Islam. Uh, they don't even refer to Muhammad. Right. The Quran is not a revelation of God. <laughs> right, right. And also, here's an important point. In, uh, in, in uh, Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, and even in Nostretate, Aidan Nichols, he says, this has been mistranslated as if to say that the, the Christian... And the Muslim worship the the one God. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Nichols says a better translation here is that the Muslim worships the God who is one, because he's a monotheist. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to saying that we worship the same God. Yeah. You see. Yeah. yeah. No. In That's any case, point. That's a good and, point. and there. So there, the fact that the Church doesn't in these documents commit us to any formal error doesn't mean that therefore the church has said everything that there needs to be said. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah. no, 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 no. There's much there that's suggestive. It's suggestive, yeah. but even even if we just take it at, you know, they're, they're, they make assertions, but they can be incomplete. They need to be, particularly since some of these uh, statements can be uh, uh, polemical and so on. So it's like, you know, the Council of Trent didn't say everything that needed to be said about the sacraments. Right. Etc. And this is important. That, that, that's really important because sometimes we expect perfection from these conciliar texts. Uh, and also sometimes we don't understand the complexity. I, I don't accept the idea that these texts were sort of compromising and that they were trying to... Look at the horse traders. I'll yeah, give yeah, you this. Yeah, I'll you, give you this. If you, <laughs> if, uh, you know. No, that's, I think that's just not true. Right. Okay, the second principle was that the, so there's, there, there are constitutions... Yep. The four constitutions, Sacrosanctum Concilium on the liturgy, mm-hmm. Lumen Gentium, the great constitution on the church, Dei Verbum on divine revelation, and then also the uh, Gaudium et Spes, right, yeah. the pastoral constitution. They have primacy. Um, these are going to be the four keys to the other documents. Right. Namely, the council's nine decrees and three declarations. There's a decree on education. There's also a a declaration on religious liberty. Is there there an easy-to-understand distinction between decrees and declarations? I think, uh, you know, I I don't know. um, Look, they all have authority. Um, uh, The decree is is making uh, a, a greater point about wh- whether it's there's a decree on uh, Christian education. Okay. Uh, there's a declaration on, on religious liberty. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying In to my th- mind, they actually blur. That's why, yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, why I'm asking. I'm not sure I yeah. know the difference. Yeah. And then it talks about the, the third principle, the pastoral import of the documents ought not to be separated from or set in opposition to their doctrinal yeah. content. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is one way that people try to minimize the significance of doctrine. They well, say, okay. well, it's not doctrinal, it's pastoral. Well, you see, okay, so here's an example I would throw out, and that is you have uh, the 19, <clears throat> the 1931 um, the, um, uh, encyclical by Pius, Pius XI, Mortalium Animus, which deals with uh, ecumenism, and then you have 1965, Unitatis Red Integratio, which affirms ecumenism. So then uh, I would argue in interpreting, so here, here to me this is the neo-traditionalist, okay? I would argue that <clears throat> everything that uh, Pius rejected about ecumenism, uh, Unitatis Red Integratio also rejected. So it rejects ecclesiological relativism, the idea that there are many churches mm-hmm. and the Catholic Church is just one. One of the many. It rejects also the branch theory of Christianity, where the trunk is Christianity, and then you have all these branches, Presbyterians, etc., etc. It rejects the idea that ecumenism is about uh, uh, forming ecclesial unity out of diversity. So ecumenism in the Catholic Church doesn't begin with ecclesial diversity from whence you want to then generate unity. No, no. You begin with the one church that is the Catholic Church. And from that, you ask the question, what's the relation between ecclesial unity and diversity within the one church? Now, the thing that Pius never asked himself is, what is ecumenism? Because historically, the understanding of ecumenism had all those errors. Yeah. That's right. And so between 1928, Mortalium Animus, and Unitatis Retro Integratio, the church, as Ratzinger says at one point, the church uh, found a way to commit itself to ecumenism within the logic of Catholicism, right. within the first principle. The church, Vatican II, doesn't, it doesn't embrace ecclesiological relativism. Nope. What, it, what it does say, so here's the dilemma that you have to avoid. On the one hand, affirming that the church that Christ founded subsists in its own right alone in the Catholic Church, but that it doesn't follow from that, that therefore outside the visible boundaries of the church, all you have is an ecclesial wasteland, right. Right. emptiness. Uh, you have Catholics who think that. Uh, I think any Catholic who thinks that has never read, in my view, has never read a, a, a magisterial uh, reformer or a Protestant yeah. Uh, whether Lutheran, Reform, exactly. has ever read Bavink, uh, uh, Kuiper, w- whatever. So it just seems you, to me— you, you Clearly, when reading these uh, these theologians, you're, you're, you're dealing with a brother. You're well, not... that's what I always say, that the <laughs> primary stance of a Catholic with a separated brethren, with a brother in Christ, is not an, it's not an adversarial relationship right. from the beginning. Right. It's, we're brothers in Christ. We're sister, brother and sister in Christ, and so on. The other thing is that we mustn't conclude from the fact that the church then in Lumen Gentium 8 says that there are elements of truth and sanctification outside the visible boundary of the church. Mm -hmm. We mustn't conclude from that that the church now embraced an ecclesiological relativism, a multiple subsistence ecclesiology. So what happens is is what you suggested. You have people, I mean, they reject ecumenism. So how do you reject uh, unitatis red integratio? How do you reject you know, 1995 encyclical Ut Unum Sint, well, you say Vatican II's II's Unitatis Red Integratio was just a pastoral document. Yes, right. And so we don't have to accept it, but that's just not the case. It is really a a doctrinal, it's it's doctrinal. um, What it says, I think, is that ecumenism is not an appendix. If I write a book on ecclesiology, 
it's not I have an appendix on ecumenism. Right. It's at the heart of Catholic, Catholic ecclesiology. Um, because the oneness of the church is at the heart of the Catholic faith. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But doesn't mean that the church now embraces ecclesiological relativism. It doesn't mean a multiple subsistence ecclesiology, but etc. Very good. We're going to come back and continue. Dr. Eduardo Echeverria taking a look at really taking our cues from um, true and false reform, what it means to be Catholic by Cardinal uh, Gerhard Mueller. And we really let off taking a look at the extraordinary synod of 1985, which is uh, considered by many, including George Weigel, a master key for understanding the church in the world today. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Eduardo Echeverria of Sacred Heart Major Seminary, where he is professor of philosophy and theology. We're talking about broad topics, but it was sparked by Cardinal Gerhard Mueller's book, True and False Reform, <clears throat> What It Means to Be Catholic. We uh, Last um, segment, we spent a lot of time looking at uh, the Extraordinary Synod of 1985, and we can go back and continue with that. But uh, you were pointing out that uh, Mueller, three particular things that Mueller uh, gets to here that uh, you wanted to Well, share. I think that the, there are three areas. One has to do with the question of doctrinal development. Yeah. And essentially the question, how do you distinguish between true and false reform? Um, the uh, We'll come back to that in a moment. The second area, is there's an apologetical dimension to his book. Right. Um, Apologetics, right after the Second Vatican Council, went into decline, didn't well, it? Well, yeah, exactly. That's why, uh, you know, the what's his name? Uh, Paul Griffith. Oh, uh, yeah. He wrote a book in the, in, the, in the 80s, maybe 90s. It was called In Defense of Apologia, you know, mm-hmm. In Defense of Apologetics. Yeah. Because apologetics was out of fashion, and it was out of fashion— uh, it was was wrong headed. It was a wrong headed thing. But they they thought it was out of fashion because because remember we they talked about triumphalism and right. the idea that somehow if you if you knew something to be true, period, <laughs> that somehow that was uh, that was uh, arrogant, haughty, and trying to exercise power yeah, over yeah, others, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is total nonsense, of course. I mean, the fact is, yes, Saint Paul tells us in First Corinthians thirteen that we see through a glass darkly. But he says, we see. We do see. <laughs> we do see. You know, what does it mean? We, we affirm, you know, uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's true. Uh, it's true, period. <laughs> it's, it's not like, well, yes, of course. Can we deepen our understanding of what all that that implies and so on? Well, of course. Uh, of course we can do that. But the fact is, it had everything, I, th- I think, to do with the understanding of uh, truth and uh, justification, how, how is it that we can just be justified in holding something to be true? What does it mean for something to be true, uh, that you can know the truth about reality? You know, John Paul II in Fides et Ratio, he says that, you, you know, the, the Catholic tradition holds to uh, a version of epistemic realism. That means that we can know the truth about reality. Yeah. Does that mean that there's nothing more to say? No. But whatever it is that we say further on, however much we go on to deepen our understanding, has to be consistent with what we already know to be the case. Yeah. So yeah. we're also realists about truth. We think that, that a proposition is going to be true if what it asserts is, in fact, the case about objective reality. Let me stop you there for a minute. 
what you said there is actually a, f- a fairly controversial statement in a lot of contemporary theology. You actually believe in propositional truth. Propositional truth. That, that God can communicate in sentences. <laughs> sentences. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. In fact, I start off in, in, uh, in, my, uh, in, in my review of, uh, of Muller's book, I say, throughout his book, Muller makes clear the philosophical realism that undergirds Catholicism, and then I quote him, the realistic view of God's revelation and saving will, which embraces the whole human being, implies a realistic epistemology. That means that you can know the truth about reality. Remember, even Francis Schaeffer used to say you can know the truth uh, without knowing it exhaustively. Right. You know, right. you can deepen your you understanding. You can be accurate, but not exhaustive. Exactly. So yeah. you can deepen your understanding. So... A realistic view of God's revelation, which embraces the whole human being, implies a realistic epistemology and insight into the identity of truth and reality. So when we assert that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or that when we assert that God exists, or Eucharistic presence, or, or remember St. Paul says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> it's true to reality. Yeah. We can know it to be true. Does that mean that we know everything that there is to know about? No. Why, why is it? Because we know that statement is true that St. Paul tells us, but he doesn't work out for us in that statement, mm-hmm. you know, the, the atoning work of Christ. Yeah. No. So th- theology has deepened our understanding of Christ's atoning work. How, what, what's it all about? So it just seems to me we fell into uh, the, the quagmire of thinking that we can't know anything to be true. Right. Or that you, you and need somehow to that's, that's humble. No, it's not <laughs> humble. I tell people, no. Whenever I hear somebody say, say that, that this has to do with humility, no. It has nothing to do with humility. The humility is not found in the fact that you can't know something to be true, period. The humility is found in the fact that whatever it is that you know to be true, period, you can continue to deepen your understanding of what That's you right. know. But That's whatever right. it is that you know has to be consistent w- with what you know already know to be the case. Yeah. Another example of that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. Yeah. Peter tells us there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, Jesus Christ. Paul says there's only one mediator between God and man. So those are all true. That means that, however, so suppose we then go on to reflect about the fate of the unevangelized, right. those who through no fault of their own have failed to respond to the gospel. However, however we deepen our understanding of that question has to be consistent with what we already know to be the case, yes. that there's only one Savior, That's right. Jesus Christ. We can't then conclude, well, actually, now we, we think that there are many. We embrace religious pluralism or no. In fact, Muller explicitly rejects a religious pluralism in his in his book. He rejects also ecclesiological relativism. So here, this view, I say, presumes an epistemic realism, namely that we can know the truth about reality. Can we know it exhaustively? No, but we can know it to be true, period. Right. right. And also the identity of truth and reality, a proposition is true if and only if what it asserts is in fact the case about objective reality. Otherwise, it is false. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If that's not true in the sense that it's true to reality, yeah, you can believe it, but you're believing something that's that's false. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then also, Muller 
Mueller's a Mueller's a he he stands he, he in his discussion of doctrinal development he connects with Newman but he also connects with uh, Vincent of Lorenz yeah. mm-hmm. which Vatican II does as well and here's the crucial quote for the deposit of faith Second Timothy one fourteen the truths contained in our sacred teaching are one thing the mode in which they are expressed but with the same meaning and the same judgment is another thing yeah, yeah. so. I mean, this is the exciting. We have the the uh, ascension uh, coming right, up on right, Thursday, right? And I've been I've been doing a lot of thinking on this. And you, once you start to think seriously about these great landmarks uh, of the faith, you realize what you don't know too. Well, yeah. You well, know? that's why for two thousand <laughs> years. You know, let's say, okay, less than 2,000, since Augustine, people have been, theologians have been writing about the Trinity, about Christology, about the nature of the, the, you know, the two persons of Christ, the two natures of Christ, one person. We continue to reflect, to deepen our understanding, alternative formulations, if you line up Augustine, Aquinas, uh, John Henry Newman, uh, from Balthazar, John Paul II, Benedict, etc., etc., there there are alternative formulations yeah. of, you know, the one faith. But those That's alternative right. formulations have the same meaning and make the same uh, uh, judgments of, of truth. They're, just let me end here with this. Uh, well, I, I want to make sure. You said doctrinal development is a concern of him. Apologetics. Apologetics. And what was the third one? And the third one... Uh, you know what is it? What is it, how does it? How does a Catholic hold on to, um, you know, ecclesial relativism, ecclesial, uh, uh, you know, religious relativism? I quoted him on a variety of, of so these is, areas. Is that what epistemic is, realism? Well, no, epistemic realism. See later on. Okay, so uh, I go on to say, look, Muller, Catholic world and life view. The third aspect of Muller's gotcha. book deals with the Christian faith as a total world and life view because it embodies the truth about the whole of human life. He says, right. Catholicism is not only something contained in doctrine, but also a state of mind and a way of life, he says. And so, Trinitarian Christian faith, yeah. the creation, natural theology, Christology, he says, um, ecclesiology, um, ecumenism. He's, he's, yeah, he's committed to ecumenism, but he's not an ecclesial relative. He doesn't think there are many churches. Right. Yeah, this is important. Religious uh, it, relativism. Yeah, it's it. This is always, always difficult to deal with this because we actually believe there is one true church, right? But there is also ecclesial fellowships. Well, we, there. We are, but I would of, say, go ahead. I would say that there. The question we ask as a, a Catholic ecumenist, there's the one church, and we have to ask, what about what's the relation between ecclesial unity and diversity? There is ecclesial diversity in an analogical sense, you know. You you have churches to a greater or lesser degree that embrace that embrace uh, you know those elements of truth and sanctification yeah. outside the visible bounds of the church. Now, in some yeah, the, the the historic churches in the United States, you know, that's less and less because they reject the authority of Scripture. Yeah, they yeah. reject uh, uh, you know uh, marriage and et cetera, et cetera. Right. But right. but but in some sense. We can't think that that it's just an ecclesial wasteland out there. That's right. Or or just emptiness. Uh, In some analogical sense, in some, you know, the primary analogy is always going to be the Catholic Church. But in some sense, these are also, I would say, churches with a small C. Okay. 
Um, and so, um, I think I think the, the, to the degree that they reflect to the, the degree, teaching of the one true church. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. he goes on. He says, uh, "Here's another." Um, when when he gets to the uh, uh, returning to Muller's thesis about a realistic epistemology, it follows that without that epistemology, without propositional revelation, without the idea that you can know the truth about reality, without a realist view of truth, there is no, and then I quote him, no criterion distinguishing between true and false reform. Meaning that without it, we cannot preserve the same meaning yeah. and judgment, he says of the truths of faith, and hence the material continuity, the identity, and universality of those truths. Only then can we distinguish between true and false yeah. development. Now, I think the, the neo-traditionalist doesn't accept the idea that there's development. Remember that uh, Vincent of Lorenz in the 5th century, <clears throat> I've written a lot about Vincent of Lorenz. Vincent of Lorenz in the 5th century said uh, he, distinguished, he distinguished between uh, development and change. Change is when one thing becomes something else. Mm. So if someone says, well, same-sex marriage is just really a development of traditional marriage. Right. It's not true. It's not true. It's, it's different. It's, 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 it's a, not marriage. It's not marriage. Yeah. It's a change because it's become something else. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's become something else. It, development, it, it has to be organic. There has to be a, a material continuity. Yeah. And uh, there, are, there are Catholics who try to argue, as you just said, that somehow same-sex so-called marriage is actually just a development. No, and uh, I I agree. Whole, no, no, that's why I call not. it so-called marriage. If three, if the yeah. three elements of traditional marriage are permanence, two-ness, male and female two-ness, and the 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 key point that sexual differentiation is a fundamental. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Eduardo Echeverria, Professor of Philosophy and Theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Uh, we've been talking about the Cardinal uh, Gerhard Mueller's book, True and False Reform, What It Means to Be Catholic. And let's talk, we've, we've said much about um, the problems that neo-traditionalists have. Let's talk explicitly, and in, 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 in we've also talked about the problem that modernists have. They ex They don't accept propositional truth or propositional revelation, so they end up not having a base upon which to stand. But when it comes, they're the ones who made this distinction between the so-called the spirit and the letter of Vatican II. Right. That was a way of escaping the propositional <clears throat> statements in the in the in the text. Yeah. The, yeah. 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 So give the, me the spirit, the spirit behind it. Right. So the spirit, the spirit of the spirit of behind the text. It could be that you think. Um, the dynamic of reform, that you think that conciliar consciousness, you know, the fact that we're having, that there, there are some, some, some theologians who thought the great thing about Vatican II was that we were having a discussion, that there was a discussion about the content of the faith and, and so on. So you have this dynamic, and the dynamic, the spirit, tends to relativize the letter of the text. The letter of the text, of course, is the literal sense. What does that? What? What? What do these texts actually assert? <laughs> right. Okay. So yeah. what? So if you emphasize the spirit of the text, you see, then you're going to relativize the 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 letter, 
You're going to relativize the documents. You're going to relativize the authority of the documents because you're going to think that there's no one document where the spirit of the text of conciliar consciousness or of reform regarding ecclesiology or whatever the case may be has actually fully manifested itself in the document. And so this is why Ratzinger, whenever he came back from the council, eventually, you know, he lost his mind because there were people who wanted to already have a Vatican III. <laughs> right, right. Because, because the authority of the text themselves, uh, they relativized in the light of the spirit of the council. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I say, that could be ref- the spirit of reform. That could be the spirit of, uh, you know, conciliar consciousness where, where the whole point of the church is that we're constantly getting together to discuss the content of the faith. Etc. But we never arrive. Well, we, we haven't arrived yet, you see. <laughs> right, so we continue. Right. We, so, and that's one of the principles. No opposition may be made between the spirit and the letter of Vatican II. Yeah. And then the fifth principle. If you want to know the spirit, read the letter. That's exactly what Ratzinger says. Yeah. If yeah. you want to know the spirit of the text, you have to read the letter <laughs> of the text. You have to read the literal sense. The literal sense of the text is the sense intended by the author. Now, remember, as we said at the beginning, we can't think that any one text is somehow has said everything that right. needs to be said. That's right. No. But that doesn't mean that what it said was in, uh, erroneous. Right. It just means that it... So you can, you can go on to reflect, to, f- to formulate, uh, to give alternative formulations, to deepen your understanding, etc., uh, which, is, which is fine. As long as you keep in mind what's being what 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 has the council actually asserted? Right. Remember, as I said earlier, Ratzinger Benedict said, "Yes, Nostretate, good document, etc." But it was too positive it, 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 about other religions. It didn't make critical statements. You see, even though, even though, if you read. You know the the document on the, the decree on the missionary mandate of the church ad hentes, or if you read uh, Lumen Gent- Lumen, uh, the the document on the church, uh, it makes comments about uh, you know these other cultures and other 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 religions and and how they are uh, they distort general revelation and all of that. So you can find elements there. The the fifth principle it states in 85, the council must be interpreted in continuity with the great tradition of the church, including earlier councils. And that's clear from anybody who reads the the footnotes in these documents. The church is one and the same throughout all the councils. Again, so this is where, remember... Uh, Benedict's 2005 address where he distinguishes the, the hermeneutic of rupture and discontinuity, but he doesn't oppose that to the hermeneutic of continuity. It's the hermeneutic of reform and renewal within the one church. So there right. can be reform. There can be renewal. Right. right. So if, you're on, if you don't think there can be reform and renewal, well, then you're going to reject you're going to reject uh, ecumenism. You're going to reject. Uh, you're going to reject. Eventually, you're going to get to the point you reject. For instance, you know the Declaration on Religious Liberty. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre. He signed it, but then he rejected it. Yeah. And yeah. he rejected it because he. Th- the title of one of his books was called uh, "Unseating Christ as Lord." Mm. So he thinks that if you affirm religious liberty, that means that you can't actually affirm the lordship of Christ. Yeah. Which I, I think it's not true. No, of course not. I mean, the, the one statement has to do with ultimate reality, 
and the other statement has to do with civic situations. Uh, right. Uh, well, the, let me put it this way. There's a way to account for a continuity between, you know, so you have, you have the 20th, 19th century uh, uh, popes who denied religious liberty. Right. And then you have uh, dignitatis humani. I, again, I say you need a historical uh, an approach that interprets these documents in their context. So everything that uh, Gregory XVI rejected about religious liberty, Vatican II also rejected. It rejected religious relativism, the idea that all religions are equally vehicles of salvation and right. equally true. rejected that. It rejected the idea that somehow marginalized Christianity, put it, put it on the outside. Um, no, the church was still uh, engaged, should also be engaged in the proclamation of the gospel. The church should be engaged in, 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 uh, in, in apologetics, as it were. I would say everything that was rejected was still affirmed by Vatican II. But Vatican II asked the question, which, which neither Leo or Gregory asked, well, what is religious liberty? Yeah. Because their understanding of religious liberty contained all these false uh, presuppositions about that religion had nothing to do with truth, right. with reason. Right. Uh, it was fideism, They're, the yeah. privatization They're of Christianity. The, what, what came out of the Enlightenment. And all of and, that. Okay. And, and, well, we go back to Tertullian and Lactantius. They have right. statements in favor of religious liberty. Right, right, <laughs> but, right. So, uh, so the church is one and the same throughout all the councils. And then the sixth principle... Um, Vatican II should be accepted as illuminating the problems of our own day. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, M Cardinal Muller is committed to that. He's, he says at one point, you know, you're committed to be committed to Va Vatican II, he says. Uh, how does he put it? He says to be committed to Vatican II means that you're committed to what the council asserts. It's not. It's not as if you're you know, you're just uh, committed in, in a kind of a, a conventional manner. No, you're committed to the notion that what the council taught was, in fact, true. Yeah. Was it perfect? As I say, yeah, it, no, it wasn't perfect, but it didn't commit the church to any error. Right. And, you know, this is you're not sitting around waiting for Vatican III. No, <laughs> you're, you're using or what you're the not wanting to us. go back before the council. Right. Um, as though the council never happened, as though the or the council was you know, wrong-headed to uh, begin with. Yes, I, as I, I said to you earlier, uh, in the break, you know, George Weigel in his recent book on Vatican II, he takes these principles from the 1985 uh, Extraordinary Synod to be the the master key to interpreting the council. But then he also thinks that the minor keys are John Paul II's pontificate and all his all the writings, yeah. the body of literature, and and then also Benedict. Yeah. And, and Benedict, these were these are two, these are the three keys, as it were. Are are you surprised? And, and maybe I'm wrong in my observation, but it seems to me that the great body of material that was generated by John Paul II's pontificate, and then the great body of material that was generated by Cardinal Ratzinger, and then also in his pontificate, right. that that seems to have been left behind. We're suffering. I once gave an interview to a Dutch newspaper a Catholic newspaper, and I said to them, this was probably like, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, and I said, 
the church is suffering from amnesia. <laughs> okay. We have amnesia. We're, we're yeah. kind of like pretending that uh, the, great, the great writings of John Paul II. <laughs> These are exceptional and, oh, people. Absolutely. <laughs> and the great writings of, yeah. uh, of Benedict Ratzinger, Benedict, or even, you know, John Paul II's, his, his pre-papal writings, uh, uh, the, the Person in Act, uh, yeah. his yeah. book on love and responsibility, um, and so on and so on. So many things, the Lublin lectures. And, and then, of course, when you get into the theology of the body and then all the encyclicals, Fides et Ratio and Veritatis Splendor. I mean, are they, are, are they kidding? <laughs> are I, they kidding? It's, it's weird. It's, a, it's weird. Well, I, amnesia is a good word for amnesia. it. Amnesia. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a... Con, uh, that's another topic. I think, it, of course, it has something to do with you know, the current pontificate and... Um, which but, is not which has not committed itself to a lot of doctrinal no no uh, no and, material and it, so there's and, an anti anti intellectualism and uh, but in any case so yes I mean good heavens I I try in my classes I try to you know expose the students to the seminarians and yeah. then, and then the commuter students and you know I mean good heavens there's the writings of uh, John Paul II and uh, Benedict and Ratzinger and good heavens and. And of course, Muller is a student of Ratzinger. Yeah, you know he's the yeah. general editor of Ratzinger's uh, Bene- uh, Ratzinger Benedict, uh, you know, multi-volume work. You know, and Catholic University of America is now producing, you know, the critical writings, uh, critical edition of John Paul II and Karl Wojtyla's writings. Oh, you good. Know? They did a new translation of what what was published in the late seventies. You know, the acting person. They now retranslated it. And it and the, and the title of the book is actually the person in act. Yeah. It's I hope it reads better. Uh, oh yes, well it does. <laughs> and then also, of course, there was the same guy who did the, the translation of the person in act, the new edition, also did the, the new translation of uh, of uh, love and responsibility. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's just. I mean, I, I personally, I just I don't understand it. We've got about a minute left, um, and. Part of the problem is I agree with you on all of this, and and I say to myself, it seems self-evident to me. This this seems so basic. If you don't believe in propositional truth, it's hard to have a conversation. Well, that's also true. But you don't have a you don't have a you know you don't have a, a starting point. Right. You think that revelation is experiential, and then. You you formulate your experiences in words, sentences, and and even propositions, but these are not revealed truth. You know? Right, right. They don't have status. They don't have any truth. kind of revealed status. No, that. that's true. Uh, you're, as you look over the state of uh, the church and its reflections, theological reflection, um, are are we? Is this amnesia that we have? Looking back to Benedict and John Paul II, is this with us for a while it's, yet? You know, I want to say it's more than amnesia, because yeah. when you listen to, when you listen to, you know the 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 relater uh, Cardinal Holerich, you know, yeah, yeah, and when you listen to Cardinal uh, from San Diego uh, McElroy, yeah, McElroy, and when you listen to uh, Cardinal uh, Supic, yeah, no. They, I think they just reject. It's not amnesia. Yeah. I don't know if they understand what it is they're rejecting, but they reject it. You know, they reject uh, in the cat. The you know the part three of the catechism. 
the reflections on the sixth commandment, which has to do with anthropology and mm-hmm. and sexual morality. Well, they reject all that. Yeah, and the yeah. the you know uh, the 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 Belgian bishops also. They they reject all that, and the German bishops. So we're we're we are heading for a definite showdown. Well, hope yeah. I mean, I we need somebody who says, no, this can't be. <laughs> right. Just yeah. if you, if, one second. When when the Episcopal Church in the United States, uh, you know, um, had a. Uh, a homosexual, self-professing homosexual, lived with a man and all that, and and you know made him into a bishop. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who was then Rowan Williams, he said, "You didn't follow procedures." <laughs> the the Nigerian bishop said, "This cannot be. <laughs> it simply can't. It be. can't be. This will never be." <laughs> See, that's the difference, and that's what we need. That's what we need. <laughs> Somebody who says, "This cannot be." And thanks. Wonderful being with you again. All right, man. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> Dr. Eduardo Echeverria is professor of philosophy and theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. He's the author of Are We Together? A Roman Catholic Analyzes Evangelical Protestants and Pope Francis, The Legacy of Vatican II.